Atlanta's new Mercedes-Benz Stadium, where they're hosting the Super Bowl this year, they financed the project with $225 million in state and municipal bonds, but they paid an additional $23 billion in premiums on those bonds. So the total cost of taxpayers is more like $248 million for those. But after those are paid off, the hotel taxes that are funding those then go to the team for maintenance and upkeep and renovations of the stadium. And our estimates show that the Atlanta taxpayers are going to give around a billion dollars to the team over the 30-year lease. And that's not even counting that the free land that the city gave to the team and the fact that the team, by playing on public land, manages to avoid paying property taxes for that land. Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. With the Super Bowl behind us, football fans are already looking ahead to the 2020 season, and they're not the only ones thinking about the future of the NFL. More specifically, speculation about where and how new stadiums will be built is in full swing, particularly in the Washington, D.C. area. Even back in December, the Washington Post reported that Washington Redskins owner Daniel Snyder was working with Congress to secure a deal for a new football stadium, and in response, local lawmakers have started signaling their reluctance to engage in a bidding war for the team. A Virginia delegate introduced legislation proposing an interstate compact between Virginia, Maryland, and D.C., which would essentially bar all three localities from providing incentives to host a new Redskins stadium. Maryland delegate David Moon and D.C. Councilmember David Grosso have both indicated support for something similar. So today we're talking about the Redskins stadium, how an interstate compact might affect it, and what all this means for other sports stadium deals. First, I'm joined by the Washington Post, Liz Clark. Liz has two decades as a sports writer for the Post under her belt, including eight seasons with the Redskins. Thanks for joining us, Liz. A pleasure. Thank you. And next up, we welcome back Michael Farron. Michael's been on the show before to talk stadium subsidies, and his research covers a range of issues at play here, including government favoritism and economic development. Welcome back to the show, Michael. Great to be here. And finally, we have Matthew Mitchell on the phone. Matt is one of our research directors here at Mercatus, also focusing on public choice economics and the economics of government favoritism. Glad to have you aboard, Matt. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to the discussion. So I I wanted to start off with a a two economists and a sports writer uh, walk into a bar joke, but nothing really came to me. So I'm just going to scrap that and save everyone uh, and and just kind of dive right in. I gave a little bit of background, but it was kind of fast and I intentionally avoided all the details because you Mm -hmm. guys are the experts. So my question to start us off is, how did we get here, right? How do we get to a situation where an NFL owner is working with Congress to try to figure out how a sports stadium will be financed, and now regional and local lawmakers are involved? This seems like a lot is going on to mm-hmm. determine where a sports team plays their game. So, so what's the background here, and why are we even having this conversation? Broadly speaking, I hope this 30 minutes or whatever of conversation is is broad enough to make sense in a lot of markets and, and for a lot of your listeners. But what is up in D.C. with the next home of the Redskins is really quite peculiar in that the first choice site that the team owner wants is federally owned land. So the first hurdle he has to clear is a big political challenge that is really not replicable in a lot of markets, the typical markets. So the site he most wants is the the federally loaned land where the RFK stadium site still sits vacant and sort of rusting. For him to build on it, a couple things have to happen. It takes an act of Congress to either cede ownership of the land to D.C., and then it would be up to D.C., the mayor, the city council, the taxpayers to decide, okay, do we want to give this to this billionaire to further make 
billions. Or <laughs> I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit. Um, or it could be Not a, too much, though. <laughs> or it could be a 99 year lease. You know, a, a lease long enough that makes you comfortable bu- building a stadium. So the the piece we wrote in December for the Post about w- what ostensibly was a backdoor maneuver that the Redskins, in concert with the mayor and and certain members of the city council, were, were trying to take to get that first step to happen, the transfer of control of that coveted parcel of land, um, I want to say 280 acres, it's massive, to the D.C. government. And then they, in turn, would decide what to do with it. The mayor's on record as saying she wants the return of the NFL. She wants the return of the the Redskins here, despite her discomfort and many other people's discomfort with the name. She's prepared to put that aside because it's perceived as such an economic win and an engine and ostensibly will do great things for the city. So that part of the political hurdle is kind of unique to this situation. And how we got here, the Redskins play at a stadium that's now 21 years old in Prince George's County. The owner inherited it. It, You know, in terms of ego, it's not his building. It wasn't his vision. He bought it when he bought the team. He's never really liked it. The, the life cycle of an NFL venue, sadly, is about 20, 25 years, stunningly. It's not that they're falling apart, but they're deemed passe or out of date or they don't print cash as quickly as other venues. So uh, it's just last season's stadium. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then it's, no, no, you're quite right. So I'll, I'll wrap it up here. But yeah, so it's even though he has a stadium that's perfectly serviceable and he owns it, it's it's out of date. So he wants a new one. That, and the first chance he can vacate his current building by law is 2027. He is obligated to continue playing there under uh, the contract in which he bought the team. Fascinating. Uh, you you definitely know a lot more about the nuances of the the local uh, aspects of the the Redskins Stadium or potential future stadium than I do. Uh, what I can offer to what Chad's question is: Where did this all come from? My my response would be: How far back do you want to go? <laughs> and the general history of this of of funding stadiums for professional sports goes back to 1953, when uh, the Boston Braves mm-hmm. uh, Major League Baseball team left Boston and moved to Milwaukee uh, for a publicly built stadium in Milwaukee. They had had a farm team in Milwaukee and it was um, had a lot of fans there, and they were essentially losing the competition for fans in mm. Boston to the Red Sox. And so they jumped ship to Milwaukee. That was the first instance of a that I can find in the in the history of a team mm-hmm. moving for a stadium subsidy. And they were in Milwaukee for only 12 years before then moving to Atlanta and becoming the Atlanta Braves. But that set off a surge in especially Major League Baseball stadium mm-hmm. subsidies that uh, proceeded from that point. And there was federal tax reform that attempted to fix the problem in the 70s and then again in the 80s because a lot of these stadiums are funded with municipal bonds. Mm-hmm. Municipal bonds are not subject to federal income taxes or the, the income derived from them because it would be a example of the federal government taxing a division of state government, municipal governments. And so it's not legally allowed to do that. And it's also seen as a bad idea because you want municipal governments to public services projects that they would fund with those municipal bonds. And so, uh, but there's a problem when you use municipal bonds for 
private enterprise activity, which mm-hmm. is essentially what is happening with um, with the stadium. So Congress has tried to rein it in in the 70s and in the later in the 80s, and they accidentally just made the problem worse. <laughs> and we've mm-hmm. been seeing accelerating stadium subsidies and money spent on stadium subsidies more and more over the last few decades. And at this point, we're spending about a billion taxpayer dollars per year on stadium subsidies. Mm -hmm. Um, Municipal bonds granted between 2000 and about 2014, I think, were 2000 2000 and 2016, I'm sorry, about 13 billion in municipal bonds. And between 2000 and 2014, about 3.7 billion in federal taxes were lost to the income on those municipal bonds. So uh, definitely a, a large problem in terms of taxpayer dollars going to fund something that is not necessarily uh, for the public benefit. Sure. And if I could just piggyback, obviously we're seeing, in addition to in many markets, municipal bonds being floated, a rise in taxes that you can sort of sell as a politician to your local constituents. This really isn't going to hurt you, but we're going to raise the hotel motel tax or we're going to raise the tax on car rentals at the airport. So it's tax dollars. And then that big category that is often unknowable, what are lost revenues from any tax concessions, like you don't have to pay this, or what are the lost revenues from a project that might otherwise have been built on that land that might have generated something to the greater good. Absolutely. So there's layers and layers of the cost, but the municipal bond is the classic move. Mm -hmm. And Atlanta's uh, new Mercedes-Benz Stadium, where they're hosting the Super Bowl Mm -hmm. this year, is a perfect example of what you just said. So uh, they financed the project with $225 million in state and municipal bonds, but they paid an additional $23 billion in premiums on those bonds. So the total cost of taxpayers is more like $248 million for those. But after those are paid off, the hotel tax that are mm-hmm. funding those then go to the team for uh, maintenance and upkeep and renovations of the stadium. And our estimates show that the uh, Atlanta taxpayers are going to give an, around a billion dollars to the team over the 30-year lease. And that's not even counting that the free land that the city gave to the team and the fact that the team, by playing on public land, manages to avoid paying property taxes for that land. And there's Mm -hmm. actually a collection of Atlanta taxpayers who are pushing for a lawsuit to say that, well, because the team completely controls the stadium and all of the revenue it generates, it counts as a long-term leaseholder. And under law, they should be paying property taxes. And that would amount to about $700 million over the course of the 30-year lease. Yeah. So a couple of things here. So one, if you judged the economic impact of sports based on you know our sense of how important they are culturally, I think you would radically overestimate the effect. So, you know, if you think about the percentage of time, you know, water cooler talk um, and uh, uh, time that people put into sports, you would have this idea that, you know, it must have a huge impact on a local economy. But the best estimates suggest that it's really quite modest. So the uh, most estimates suggest that stadiums, uh, that, that local um, teams, really constitutes something like 1.5% of the local of a local economy that has uh, a sports stadium. So we're, it's not actually all that big of money, even though it, it gathers our attention. But um, the interesting thing is then to look at what, what do we know about the effect of subsidies um, on a local economy? And, you know, there are 
there, there's a lot of things that economists disagree on. And I always like to try to, you know, be upfront about, you know, some things are really not settled science and other things are. Sports stadiums are one that there's, you actually find a, quite a bit of agreement on economists that sports stadium subsidies are ineffective in terms of uh, growth strategies. So, you know, a recent survey of uh, academic economists found that 83% of them uh, believe that the costs of a stadium subsidy outweigh the benefits. W- one study I'd, I'd point to, there, there was a widely cited study um, in 1999 by a, a couple of, of economists um, that basically could find no statistically significant effect from stadium subsidies. But um, a couple of years ago, one of those economists, Dennis Coates, updated it. Um, he added about 17 years worth of data added a couple of other types of leagues. And uh, what he found uh, was actually more depressing. In some cases, um, the effect of a stadium subsidy is negative in terms of its um, uh, correlation with per capita income, wage, and salary. So the idea that handing out subsidies to a stadium will be, you know, a local boon for the economy is at best not supported by the data uh, and at worst, it may even be counterproductive. It may actually undermine um, a local economy's um, economic prospects. Economics really is the dismal science. <laughs> <laughs> Economists always full of good news. Uh, it, it does set us up well to talk about something else that I mentioned when we kind of started, which was the sort of regional lawmakers' response. I mentioned a couple of examples of folks who have said, you know, let's, let's try to get this thing called an interstate compact put mm-hmm. together where we, we won't bid against each other for the stadium. You, know, you all follow this issue, and you know, that's probably an easy word for you all to just kind of roll off the tongue. Uh, but for a lot of our listeners, interstate compact may not be something that they've heard about. So I'm wondering if you guys can just kind of walk us through what is an interstate compact, maybe generally, and in this specific case, what would that involve? And why do we have you know lawmakers from Maryland, D.C., and Virginia sort of all engaged in this process? Interstate compacts is an area that I've been studying a lot recently, and it's a fascinating area of law and U.S. history, and um, it's something that is relatively unique to the U.S., uh, because of its structure as a consortium of sovereign states that then joined together to create a national union and then agreed to be subject to the national union but to retain some element of their sovereignty. So as opposed to other uh, countries or many other countries uh, like Canada where the territories are actually creations of the federal state and therefore are mostly wholly subject to the federal state except for the, where the federal state has said, we we give you this authority. Uh, in the U.S., it's the states giving the federal government authority mm-hmm. and then retaining the rest for themselves. So that is one of the reasons why the states can create these compacts or essentially what amount to contracts between each other. And they were part of the early colonial experience even before we were a United States, but they have been used since then as well. Uh, The border between Virginia and West Virginia, North Carolina and South Carolina, and many others are the result of an interstate compact between the two states. Mm -hmm. And they matter even to this day because as rivers change course, in particular the Missouri, the states that border the Missouri River actually have to update their compacts with regards to the fact that the, the river is the border 
between the two states. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, but there's actually been a lot more work on interstate compacts in the last hundred years. Uh, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey is the result of an interstate compact between the two states to govern New York Harbor and a lot of others. So the important thing to understand is the the scope and the size of an interstate compact is only limited by the creativity of the people who come up with a compact, uh, what state legislatures are willing to bind themselves to because it is constitutionally binding, even to the point of superseding a state's constitution itself. Mm -hmm. um, and if it requires congressional consent, which they don't always do, whether Congress is willing to go ahead and say, agree to it or not. To tie this to what's going on with the Redskins, any NFL owner who is getting ready to build a new stadium, the dream scenario is to be so close to two jurisdictions, two states, that you pit them against each other. You think of the Giants and the Jets, you know, when they've played New York against New Jersey. Dan Snyder, the owner of the Redskins, is in the total catbird seat. He's got three. So, <laughs> like, oh, my God, he can – He, in theory, he's going to play – D.C. against Virginia against Maryland for the big prize to um, to get his stadium, get the chance to to help him build his stadium. And he's sort of been sitting back waiting for the offers to come forth. So, you know, it's much like if you owned a home and you're selling your home. You'd rather have two buyers bidding than one and certainly three buyers bidding for your house. <laughs> it's like, yay. Um, so uh, this this notion of the interstate compact as it relates to let's not bid against each other. Let's not get seduced into this bidding war to get the Redskins Stadium with dubious math and dubious benefits. That actually predated the December story about the political man maneuvers. It was it was tried at least a year ago, maybe even sooner. It's been tricky to pull off because the calendars of the legislative bodies of Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. don't overlap. Two are full-time, one's part-time. And and honestly, I don't think it would prevail anywhere. You know, it's, it's a very cool and creative and bold, preemptive, taxpayer-minded move or position for the sponsoring politician to to take. But I think it would be a very, very tough sell in their respective entities. But it, it serves a great purpose as a talking point, if nothing else, to to just let people know, hey, there's complicated math here, as, as this whole conversation is about. So don't be seduced by what you might think is the benefit of getting the stadium. Let's pause, look hard at this, both as legislators, as taxpayers, mayors, governors, before we, you know, trip over each other to try to get the stadium and start signing checks that are just going to be a big burden down the road. Well, Liz, Liz mentioned the math, and I think uh, that's important to point out that there's, you know, a difference between the economic math and the political economy math. So economists can point out that the economic benefits of a stadium subsidy are either non-existent or maybe even aren't benefits but costs on mm -hmm. net. But that doesn't necessarily mean that poli policymakers, that politicians mm. uh, have an incentive to say no to stadium subsidies. And the reason uh, you know, goes back to the, this idea that economists uh, have been talking about for about a half century here. Uh, it's mostly associated with the um, late University of Maryland economist, uh, Mansur Olson. And it's the idea that a lot of public policy has concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. <laughs> so, yep. you know, if you concentrate the benefit, if you, if you uh, 
have a stadium subsidy, the benefits are concentrated on uh, a few highly organized individuals, you know, the owners of the teams, their boosters, uh, some of their fans, and they're, they're visible. The costs are borne by a diffuse group of taxpayers who are typically not very well organized um, and typically, you know, may not may not know uh, the nuances of the issue. And so, uh, you know, any rational policymaker is going to look at this and say, you know, hey, even if you show me the economics of it, um, look, I've got this highly organized group that's uh, that stands to gain from this. I'm not going to say no to them. Um, so the idea of a of an of an interstate compact is, in some ways, to allow the policymakers to effectively deal with their incentives. You know, a policymaker would sort of be committing uh, political suicide to say no to a stadium subsidy uh, when he knows that the policymakers from the state next door mm. might be willing to say yes. So through mutual, the idea of sort of mutual disarmament says, okay, look, I, I will get rid of my stadium subsidies, but only uh, under the condition that another state get rid, get, gets rid of theirs. So in, in many ways, and Michael and I have written about this, it kind of has the same sort of incentive dynamics that you might think of for like, uh, you know, a mutual disarmament treaty. Mm -hmm. um, so, mm -hmm. you know, during the, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union didn't want to unilaterally disarm and neither did the United States. But, um, you know, amazingly, the leaders from both sides formed the START Treaty, which was a mutual disarmament um, in which they say, okay, we'll only get rid of our weapons if you get rid of yours. And everybody benefits uh -huh. from that in the process. That's the important other thing to recognize now that some, perhaps the, the uh, entrenched military industrial complex doesn't benefit, but the, the concentrated benefits would benefit from that. But the wider society, the broader taxpayer base would benefit from, from either having, being able to reduce taxes because you aren't paying for stadiums anymore or by shifting that money to other actually publicly beneficial activities. Uh, we show that in a lot of cases that the money could fund uh, about a 20% increase in a lot of uh, cities' police forces over mm -hmm. a long term. Uh, it could fund uh, hiring more teachers or public education. Uh, in the case of uh, Nevada's uh, $750 million that they're giving to the Raiders, it could build a new four-lane highway uh, halfway between Las Vegas and uh, the state capitol. You, this all makes perfect sense, and you guys explain this so well. The wrinkle when it comes to the NFL in particular is is that sort of indefensible but quite real allure of being the mayor who brought who landed the NFL as opposed to the mayor Sharon Pratt Kelly who lost the Redskins to Prince George's County which probably will be in the first paragraph of her <laughs> bit, even though that was you know more than 20 years ago um you know the governor they all they kind of can't resist being the governor who brought the team mm -hmm. to to Nevada never had it or um to Carolina the Carolina Panthers there was no NFL between DC and Atlanta for forever and it's it's that's where sound public policy, um, the interest of the greater good, often just go out the window. Sadly, Definitely. yeah, I think that's right. And and you know, there's there's recent research uh, by um, a couple of economists, um, Nate Jensen and uh, Ed Molesky, that that looks at what's the political effect of um, offering 
um, subsidies. And it's a little bit broader than stadium subsidies. It's just for looking at the effects for all uh, types of subsidies. Uh, and, you know, you're absolutely right. Unfortunately, the evidence is that policymakers are rewarded by the general public for giving subsidies away. Um, and in some ways, it's actually a little bit um, more depressing than the story I just told about hmm. the concentrated benefits. Um, you're just full of good news today, Matt. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry. Uh, so it, it isn't just the, um, you know, the subsidy recipients that organize for these. The general broad public tends to believe that subsidies work. Sure. Even though, you know, the, the weight of uh, economic evidence says that subsidies of any kind, uh, and again, not just stadium subsidies, but this applies to the, you know, the types of targeted subsidies that gain headlines like uh, Amazon HQ2 and Foxconn and Carrier, those types of things. Um, you know, the full weight of evidence suggests that they not only don't work, but they may even be counterproductive. Uh, so I suppose in some ways, this is where um, the three of us and, and others can perform uh, somewhat of a, a, a public service, which is just to say, hey, taxpayers, you know, if you think that the money that you're, you're spending on this is benefiting you and your communities, here's the evidence. It's, it's just not. And I think there actually is some appetite for that in that people, people get pretty indignant about inequitable policy. Um, yeah. So, you know, if you go back to something like the, um, the bridge to nowhere in Alaska, mm -hmm. this was, uh, you know, well over a decade ago, um, it came out that there was a fairly sizable chunk of money was being spent on this bridge that was going to service an island that, you know, only a few hundred people lived on. And actually, the, the indignation was so great that it caused a pretty significant policy change. And Congress uh, gave up the, the practice of earmarking, where legislators can, can um, just earmark uh, boondoggles for their local district. What I always point out with that is that, you know, it really wasn't the cost of the bridge to nowhere that got people so upset. Uh, because if, obviously, if you broke it down for you know, 300 million taxpayers, it was you know, pennies. But it was just the fact that it was concentrated on a few people that really did seem to to get under people's skin. So I think occasionally when you're able to point out that public policy sometimes benefits um, a few people, and of course, in the, in the case of stadium subsidies, we're talking about a few extraordinarily wealthy people, you can sometimes get people pretty upset about that. That's exactly where I was going to go. It, so I'm so glad you said all that. Um, I do feel the worm has turned, you know, mm -hmm. as it relates to the way the public feels about the NFL in general, and particular the way it feels about public su subsidies for NFL stadiums. Anyone, you don't have to be an economist or, you know, an NFL reporter to realize there's a huge difference in the number of home games that a Major League Baseball plays versus an NBA team plays versus the NFL mm -hmm. at 10 per year. You know, it, it's tricky to generalize across the board, you know, but any Washingtonian could tell you the difference. Well, when Verizon Center was built for the NBA team, irrespective of the economics of that building and what paid for it, it is true that that whole area is totally exploded with cool restaurants and there's been a real renaissance. So there are some cases where a stadium, even if its own self-contained math is problematic, over time it will kind of become a magnet for other development. And it, I'm not looking, I hope this doesn't sound Pollyanna. It's rare, <laughs> but it happens. And and I think you could go back and say Camden Yards, as Baltimore mm -hmm. was developing its waterfront, that too was 
kind of a beacon. It heralded a, a renaissance of that area. Again, that's irrespective of the math of that particular building, but it can be a, a magnet. You can't make that argument with the NFL for something that's used 10 games a year. The finest restaurant hotel doesn't want to build next to an NFL stadium necessarily that's used 10 games a year. The math is much harder. So that is why the new conversation is you can't build an NFL stadium, whether publicly, privately, some hybrid funding, unless you build at the same time this vast multi-use 365-day-a-year ecosystem around it. But that said, it, you know, when it comes to the Washington Redskins next stadium and Dan Snyder, um, the owner, he has certainly not helped himself. It, it, he hasn't helped make an already tough case by, you know, buying a, a $100 million yacht with the world's only IMAX and this um they had to design the yacht, I read, around the around IMAX. The IMAX. Yes, yes, yes. And, and I'm, I wondered, I was like, either that is going to be a very nice movie room for a handful of people, or I wonder if he's going to bring the team on and claim it as a, as a uh, business expense. <laughs> no, but um, I mean, to be clear, most NFL owners are billionaires, if not all, because the teams now are pretty much worth a billion one to five billion up at the high watermark. So who who's to say what they spend their money on? I mean, I, it's silly of me to wag a finger, but I can wag a finger at just the kind of tone deaf uh, obliviousness that you do this right as you're in the run up to holding your hand out. Now, we know nothing about his vision for funding this stadium, but the land is a huge, huge deal. So when I say holding your hand out, that's to even get the right to develop, make money on public, federally owned land that for some people has um, a very poignant historical association with Robert F. Kennedy, you know, because because of that site. So it's just not the smartest PR move to make when your math is already tough because you're only... Um, offering 10 games a year. Well, I think that sets us up nicely, actually. We're kind of at the, the two-minute warning, if, if you'll <laughs> be, uh, you know, abuse, the, abuse the metaphor, to kind of look ahead. And, and you guys can use this time maybe to, to make a prediction or if you were in the room with an NFL owner or a state and local policymaker, what is the solution in your all's minds? Or if you don't want to make a suggestion, what's your prediction for the future of how NFL stadiums will get built, how they should get built. And we mentioned we might be at a turning point. Very broadly, looking ahead, what is it you all expect to see or what would you like to see change in this process? I think the interstate compact idea is uh, a very good one. It's a It offers a way to get around the political economy math that Matt talked about that is in support of stadiums uh, and align it more with the real world economics math that says this doesn't actually help economic development. Uh, it may serve, as, as uh, Liz mentioned, as a magnet for other area development. But what that magnet actually does is draws businesses and entertainment-related enterprises away from where they are in the city and concentrates them around the stadium. So you're not necessarily – it may look like there's a lot of development there, but it's because there's less entertainment-related development in other places in the city. But uh, the interstate compact idea is a good one, uh, I think, worth pursuing. And importantly, I think one of the things that 
happens with the major sports leagues is they limit the number of teams arbitrarily. And uh, by doing that, they're able to play different cities off against each other. If we remove the possibility of having subsidies for stadiums and for the teams, then what you might see is an expansion of more teams because you've removed one of the major limiting factors for expanding the league. Do you want me to jump in? I feel like I've talked too much. I mean, I'll I'll try to be succinct in that I think for the NFL, the the ideal model is what's happening in L.A., uh, where there is, I mean, on the sort of ungodly side of the ledger, there is a $5 billion complex being built. It will serve two teams, um, the the Super Bowl-bound Rams and the Chargers, um, but it is privately financed. And even... Very wise uh, economists who who have written extensively about the boondoggle of stadiums will say this is pretty close to a good deal for the public. It is privately financed. The owner is putting one point six billion of his own personal cash in, which is unprecedented. We haven't broached the topic of seat licenses, which is a completely new category. I, I guess you could say it's a high end user fee. You're you're creating. You're marketing air basically above a seat to say buy the seat, but buy the right to buy the seat as well. And that money, which is in the thousands, mm-hmm. um, is going to help us fund it. So it's still privately funded, but it's on the backs of the fans, of the people who are going to use that. Yeah. And, and, and in right. this case, uh, you know, again, another first, the, the seat license holders get their money back in 50 years. 50 years could be to their kids, but it, it, you get that back. Because of how wealthy this particular owner is, I'm not sure this model is replicable. But if he does it, and he seems to be doing it, it's 60% done, and it has this three times the size of Disney World multi-use economic uh, center built to be built around it. That's the way to go. And one other caveat, the stadiums need to get smaller, you know, from 90,000, this gargantuan absurdity to maybe 60,000. I'm out. (laughs) Sorry. No, I'm not sure I can add much more to those predictions. I would just point out, you know, that their history does have, uh, give us a few examples where, um, you know, special interests have lost certain privileges. Um, you know, the general political economy rule, as I mentioned earlier, is that, you know, the concentrated organized interests tend to win. But uh, there are exceptions to this. Um, you know, there's been deregulation in airlines in the 70s that, you know, largely the regulations had benefited incumbent carriers at the expense of those who were trying to fly. There was tax reform in the 80s, uh, you know, that closed loopholes that benefited you know, just some of the wealthiest uh, individuals and corporations, and they managed to lower rates for everyone else. Um, so it's not totally unheard of, but it takes, it takes political entrepreneurs. And interestingly enough, in, in almost every case where you've seen good examples of this, uh, it, it takes some bipartisan effort. And so what I think is kind of interesting about this you know, specific effort here is it involves a Republican in Virginia, um, a liberal Democrat in uh, Maryland, an independent in D.C., um, and you know it's got a, a lot of reasonable people behind it. So you know, it's it's not crazy to say that this that uh, we could be witnessing the first steps towards um, the feasibility of interstate compacts, or at least you know as Liz mentioned, putting the just the discussion or the idea on the table so that uh, 
people start to question these these you know lucrative deals and and don't just accept them. Well, as I think several several of us mentioned at different times, this is obviously a a bigger issue. It involves multiple different sports. Just on the stadium subsidies issue, it's also a broader question about economic development uh, and and what governments should fund. So for folks who want to know more about the issue or who are interested in following your all's work. Uh, we'll just kind of go around the table if you guys want to share a website, a Twitter account, uh, something you've written recently to, to point folks towards. Uh, this is a great time. I guess, uh, Liz, if it works, we'll start with you. Sure. Um, I work for the Washington Post, and for the coming years, we're going to have a ton of people writing about the stadium issue, both in the metro side, the business side, the real estate side, and um, me in sports. So WashingtonPost.com and I'm Liz Clark with an E, but there'll be lots of bylines. And I <laughs> and I think very incisive, inquisitive coverage. <laughs> Great. And Michael? So you can find uh, my research and recent writings on this on Mercatus.org. And uh, follow me on Twitter at Michael D. Farron. Great. And Matt? All right. Uh, I, too, am uh, on Mercatus.org. And uh, my Twitter handle, Matt Mitchell 80 and as always, you can find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese with any questions, comments, or episode ideas. Thanks to our guests for sharing their expertise. For our listeners, be sure to stick around for our What's on Tap segment with Kate Delanoy coming up right after this. But for now, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Welcome to What's on Tap. I'm here with co-host Kate Delanoy, and we are trying today from Port City Brewing in Alexandria, Virginia, Long Black Vale. It's a black IPA. Uh, we will get to that in a second, but as I pour that, Kate, why don't you let us know what's on tap at Mercatus this week? Thanks, Chad. So you just had that great conversation with Matt and Michael, um, and Michael had an op-ed recently in the Tribune Newswire and looked at the cost of the stadium subsidies for the Atlanta Stadium and just how many taxpayer dollars went into that, uh, something close to $1.6 billion for the cost of that stadium. So encourage folks to check that out. And then I know you guys also talked a lot about the RFK Stadium and that whole situation. And Salim Firth had an op-ed in the Washington Post in this week's Sunday edition talking all about that. So definitely encourage folks to go check those out. And they're up, also both up on our website. Yeah. So for Patriots fans, still excited and looking for a way to use up that energy or for Rams fans looking for something to distract them. Lots of reading options for your post-Super Bowl week. Definitely. And then we've got a new policy brief from Matt Mitchell, and he's looking at con laws in the state of Vermont. Con is certificate of need, um, and folks may be familiar with them. It's the laws that prevent new people from entering until there's a proven need for that service. So, you know, another hospital can't just be started. You know, they have to say, oh, we definitely are needed. Um, Vermont has more con laws than any other state. Uh, in the nation. And it's really impacting access to care, particularly in rural areas. So Matt talks about that in his new policy brief up on our site. And then also want to get people excited. Next Wednesday, the CWT Conversations with Tyler release will be with Jordan Peterson. I have to, I'm going to stop you right there and just confess I did not make my bed this morning. So please don't let Jordan know. I will not. Secret is safe with me and hopefully all of our listeners. Um, so those are some of the big things happening here around Mercatus. Sounds good. Well, I am probably, I'm going to guess I'm a bigger fan of this than you are based on that look you gave me as soon as you tried the long black fail. Uh, so why don't, what do you, what are your thoughts? Um, so I tend to be a little hit or miss on both IPAs and with darker beers. And I would say this is probably a miss on both fronts. <laughs> 
Um, it's just both hoppy and heavy, which is not what I'm currently feeling. Uh, so I, lo- I mean, I do love Port City. I love a lot of their stuff. Um, Optimal Wits might go to, but I think this is going to be uh, probably a two out of five. That's fair. It promises piney citrus hops with coffee and dark chocolate, which I get some of those. I don't know that I, I buy all of them, but this is a, this is actually kind of a go-to favorite of mine. I'm going to give it a 3.75 out of 5. But I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. We'll try again uh, next time around and see if we can't get back on our winning streak. With that, I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up. Thanks for joining, Kate. Cheers. 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 